And Father, I want to pray for Jeff and Denise, um, as we haven't heard anything new. I know that his current job is supposed to be ending in a matter of days. And so, Lord, we continue to pray that you would uh, put that new employment in front of him, that they would continue to trust in you for your provision as they await that decision. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In the book of Romans that we've been looking at, we're looking at Israel's deliverance. And this is kind of the, uh, I guess you could call it the secondary climax of the, in fact, the whole book, if not the whole Bible. The actual climax, I think, begins in verse 33. And Paul in the book of Romans Everything that he said is ultimately to the glory of God. And that's how he concludes not only the chapter, but I think this last little paragraph that we'll not look at today, but we'll look at next time, ends with, for from him, in other words, all that he's provided in chapters 1 through 11 for mankind is from him, from the Lord. And it's through him, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ, that all that he has given to us, chapters 1 through 11, it's through him he has mediated it, and it is to him. In other words, it uh, will come back and ultimately glorify him because of what he says next. To him are all things, and then to him be glory forever. Amen. So ultimately, you could think that this great plan of redemption that involves, obviously, Gentiles, lost Gentiles, undeserving Gentiles, and then chapters 9 through 11, God has a plan for Israel as well, in spite of their disobedience, the way he puts it in spite of their transgression, rejecting their Messiah, that they will receive salvation. They'll receive deliverance. I think that's probably the better way to look at the, the word there. And all of that is ultimately for him, for his glory, that uh, all will observe what he has done, including mankind, but also the angelic creatures, that are observing. So it's all going to glorify him ultimately as all things will. So this passage kind of culminates, verses 25 through 32 culminates all that Paul has been talking about beginning in, you might even say, verse 1 of the book of Romans after he gives a little bit of an introduction. So let's take a look at this passage, and again, he's addressing primarily the Gentile audience. Some of the things that he will mention, because he's quoting an Old Testament passage, some of these things the Jewish believers would uh, remember in their upbringing, the believers that had been trained in the Old Testament. So I think he's emphasizing, as we saw last time, He's continuing to stress the, uh, the Gentile element of the church. And again, just a very quick overview. He's vindicating the righteousness of God in relationship to how he's dealing with Israel. And 
He has to remind the Jewish element of his sovereign choice of Israel. Israel is chosen with Abraham, so he reviews some of that sovereign work in order to explain why they are set aside on a present basis or rejected. They're actually under discipline. That's the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. And obviously, that's not the end of the nation of Israel. They have a restoration that is yet future, where all of Israel shall be saved. That's the passage that we're in right now. So I've kind of summarized a little bit or highlighted this restoration. He's already talked and hinted, at least, at what God is doing in the nation of Israel. The chapter actually begins by telling us that uh, the restoration is partial. In other words, there's always been a remnant of people that have responded, and uh, there's a remnant in the first century. There's a remnant in the Old Testament. He reviews that in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11. And in verse 16, he kind of hints at the idea because of the analogy that he's using that uh, the restoration you could view as positional in that uh, if the root is set apart, he uses the word holy, then also the branches positionally are set apart as well. So Israel, and I think he's looking at them broadly, nationally, you might say, positionally, they are set apart, even though not every single one of them will in fact believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we might say that the restoration is partial, it's positional. And thirdly, he talks about the possibility of God regrafting because God is able to regraft those that have been broken off. So that's verse 23. The next verse, it's not only possible, but it's very probable. Verse 24, how much more if he has grafted a wild branch, how much more will he in fact graft the natural branches? And then we saw in verse 25 last time that God is, in fact, going to work to lift the hardness of Israel. He's going to work providentially, and now he's looking into the future of what he will do in bringing Israel into a saving relationship, primarily nationally, although it'll include individuals, obviously. So God is working providentially. So it's restoration that is partial, positional, certainly possible, and even more than possible, it's probable. So we might say that because of God working providentially, it is a certain restoration. And there's some space remaining there. So what do you think is the next P on the list? You might think about it. And when we get to that point, I'll bring it out to you. So in the outline, we're looking at the future restoration. A remnant always is present. First 10 verses. Restoration is yet future, 11 through 32. There are purposes that God has for Israel's failure that includes the Gentiles. And then he's going to expand that with the parable of the olive tree, 17 through 24. And now we have the direct promise 
There's your P, by the way. Promise that uh, God is, in fact, going to save or deliver all of Israel, 25 to 32. And we saw the first part of that, the deliverance of hardened Israel, 25 and 27. We finished with verse 25, the deliverance from hardness. So God will, in fact, work after the church age to uh, remove that hardness. That was the essence of verse 25. And we look at it as a complete sentence that we didn't quite complete. We got to the semicolon at the end of verse 25, and then we'll go on into verse 26, where we have the promise that all Israel will be saved. That's the translation that we'll take another look at this morning. And just to remind you, the main clause, two main clauses, the first one in verse 25, the second one in verse 26, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. So we spent a lot of time talking about not only the you, it's plural here, and I tried to bring out the idea where it's different from what he's been using before. He's been looking very, very broadly, very generally in terms of Gentiles. Gentiles, in its broadest sense, have a, a new opportunity. Not that every single Gentile believes, because obviously the majority do not, but very broadly, that's the illustration of the olive tree. But now it's in the plural, and he adds the brethren. We said last time what he's focusing now is a little bit more narrowly, you believers within the body of Christ at Rome. He's still viewing them as as a group, you might say, because he pluralizes it. But now I think he's narrowing it down to the believers because of the use brethren there. And then the mystery that he wants them to know about is what he spells out after the little parenthetical phrase there, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. That's not revealed in the Old Testament. And that hardening is until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That has not been revealed before we have what Paul gives us here in the New Testament, that there will be an age of Gentiles that will be completed, and at the end of that Gentile age where God provides access in a different way than he did through the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, at the end of that, Israel's hardness will be lifted. And then in verse 26, we have the second independent clause, and so all Israel will be saved. And that's where we left off. And part of reminder here, we saw things to notice the audience. These are Gentile believers, obviously in Rome, and he wants them to be informed using a little phrase that he's used elsewhere, calling attention to it. This is of special importance. And we've been saying all along, lest the Gentiles think that God has replaced Israel with the church, this, uh, there's a special mystery that they are to be aware of. So he calls attention to it. And he reminds them that they are not to be arrogant or conceited, 
The arrogance is that parenthetical phrase that reminds them of what he's already exhorted in the midst of the illustration of the olive tree. And we saw last time that uh, this hardness is partial on the nation of Israel in terms of extent and also in terms of, of time. And that the end of it is the fullness of the Gentiles, the full number. Now, there's different ways of taking that, but I think probably the emphasis is the full number of Gentiles, the finite number when that is completed. And obviously, it's taken at least 2,000 years, and we may be close to the completion of it. And wouldn't it be a a very blessed thing if you were the one to lead the last Gentile to Christ, immediately preceding the end of the church age. That's a interesting thought there. And that ending has come in, probably alludes to the coming in of the kingdom. So it looks eschatologically, it looks down the road, it looks in the future, after the church age to a new era, a new time frame in terms of the kingdom. So part of the passage, deliverance is promised. That's in verse 26. So, and so all Israel will be saved. That's the the promise portion. And let's take a look at that now I mentioned, and I might not have mentioned all of the points concerning all Israel. What does he mean when he refers to all Israel? It does not refer to what some theologians take Israel in the New Testament. In fact, amillennialism, much of Reformed theology, takes Israel and spiritualizes Israel and says that it refers to the church, but I don't think that that can be uh, held up biblically. You have to spiritualize scripture, take a non-grammatical, historical, contextual approach or non-literal approach to scripture. And if you take that approach, a literal approach, then it refers to Israel, the descendants of Abraham, which has been the subject throughout. And yet some, in fact, probably even the majority of the body of Christ spiritualizes Israel, not only in other passages, but even in Romans 9 through 11. So all of Israel does not refer to spiritualized Israel, doesn't refer to the church, doesn't refer to the Israel of the past as well, and it does not refer to every single Jew. In fact, would somebody... Look up Ezekiel 20, and if you would be so kind to read it, I'll let you uh, to read it. But while you're looking that up, let me tell you what it does refer to. I think it refers to a future generation of Israel, and it looks at Israel corporately or looks at Israel as a nation, But when it looks at it corporately, because of passages like Ezekiel and other passages that indicate that even that uh, future Israel does not include every single Jewish person, because there will be some, in fact, many, that 
passages like Ezekiel indicate that will in fact reject, and as a result, God will set aside and they will not participate in the kingdom. They will not receive eternal life. Who's got Ezekiel 20? Anyone want to care to read it? Don't be shy. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands. Notice notice the eschatological nature of this passage. He's talking about the kingdom, God reigning over them. Now we know from other passages that'll be Messiah. The regathering, remember Ezekiel is written during the Babylonian captivity, some portions of it. He's promising that he's going to regather the nation after they are destroyed, essentially, by the Babylonians. Keep reading. All right. I will bring you out from the peoples, gather you from the lands where you're scattered, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. So he's talking about a future judgment. Now, in eschatology, at the second coming, there will be a separating. So he's referring to the end of the great tribulation when the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming separates. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 24. Keep reading, Ezekiel. 36? Yep. As I entered into judgment with the fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge you from the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Okay, did you get that? Did you notice there's going to be some that are purged? There are some that are separated out, and they will not be a part of that that millennial kingdom. Did you read verse 38? Yes, uh, 38. And I will purge you from the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So not every single Jew will in fact... Be saved. So he's talking about a future Israel corporately as a nation, much like we've said before, much like how God speaks of Israel rejecting the Messiah and Israel in the first century being judged, actually, in 70 AD. But yet, that was a national separating, a a national hardening that Paul talks about in Romans, and it didn't include every single Jew then. There were some that believed. In the future, there'll be some that reject, but as a nation, all will be saved. You got that? See how he speaks of national Israel, and Ezekiel 20, 33-38 is only one of the passages. So, uh, verse 26 Speaks of all yeah, Israel will be saved. I have a question. Go ahead, Jim. So, uh, are the ones that uh, that are not purged 
the, the distinguish to just to distinguish between the two groups one group is our group of, of uh, believers that have come to trust in Christ as Savior at the end of the tribulation and one group is one is are made up of people who continue to reject him yes yeah okay. they were, so they're excluded it, now in Matthew it's a, matter, it's a matter of faith then oh absolutely that's what he's been okay. developing throughout. Yeah, those that have trusted in the Messiah. Now, I think I mentioned right. Matthew 24. I meant Matthew 25, where we have three parables. The first two pertain to Israel. And remember the parable of the ten virgins, and some of them are prepared and some of them aren't. And those that are not prepared do not enter the kingdom of heaven. And those that are prepared, that... That didn't mean half of Israel. That means there's, it's just a parable. Some of them are prepared, some of them are not. And then he talks about the, uh, the other parable that uh, also pertains to Israel. The third parable is a separation of the sheep and the goats. And that one clearly speaks of Gentiles. The nations is the context. The word is the same, Gentiles, nations. So some of them will believe and respond, as we see from the book of Revelation and other passages, but uh, the majority of them will, will not believe and reject the Messiah. Those that believe amongst the Jewish, amongst the nation, will enter the millennial kingdom in physical, material bodies, mortal bodies, from both Jew and Gentile, we will participate, the church, after we are resurrected and given uh, spiritual bodies, we will participate in the millennial kingdom. We will return with Christ and we will participate in uh, our spiritual bodies. An interesting combination of people that will populate the millennial kingdom. So this is kind of some of the details kind of surrounding the deliverance of the nation of Israel. We put it on a timeline here so you can kind of visualize it. Present church age, Israel is hardened. Church age, Gentiles have access without having to go through Israel. It's a finite period of time where it'll be completed with the fullness of the Gentiles, close to the rapture, so it begins on the day of Pentecost, ends with the rapture. We've talked about the book of Revelation, chapter 11, God raises up two prophets, and this is the way that I see the chronology. Those prophets call people to believe on the Messiah. They prophesy And I think they have an immediate response of 144,000, and they're all Jews. So this is part of the group that is saved. And then they lead other Jewish people such that the nation responds, but they also lead uh, Gentiles into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then because of the tribulation, There will be extreme difficulty during that time. Many of the believers will die. In fact, the believers will face what almost appears like extinction, and particularly the nation. And I think that's what Paul has in view when he uses the word salvation. It's not just 
justification. It's not just salvation from hell, but I think it includes deliverance from uh, the period of tribulation such that they survive in mortal bodies and actually enter in. So that's the way I'm taking the word salvation. And they call upon the name of the Lord because of the severe difficulty. They've already been scattered into the wilderness. And when they call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord, the Messiah, will in fact save them and they enter into the millennial kingdom. So a little phrase that uh, Paul uses to kind of summarize what is in store. And if you put together many of the passages, Matthew 24, 25, the Ezekiel passage that we read, other passages in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Revelation will give us all of the detail of events surrounding the deliverance of the nation of Israel. So underlying all of this is God's loyal love. Over the centuries, over millennia, God continues to pour out his love for the nation of Israel. He will never forget them. So even though it looks like not much is happening with Jewish people, they still have a future because of God's loyal chesed, you might say, or loving kindness or loyal covenantal love. So that's part of verse 26, the deliverance. The latter part of verse 26 and 27, now it's prophesied. So we have a prediction and a prophecy just as it is written. So he's going to quote If you remember throughout chapters 9 through 11, when he completes a subunit, he he ends every one of the subunits with a quotation. In other words, he supports it from the Old Testament. And I think for the benefit of the Jewish audience, a little reminder here after each subunit, so also he does it here at the end. The only difference is that he adds some other teaching or words to uh, to conclude this section. But this one, he ends the subsection with a quotation from the Old Testament. So now you could say it is written that this restoration is certain because God has prophesied that it will take place. And what God says makes everything certain. So the restoration is certain. It's not only partial, it's not only positional, it's not only possible, it's not only probable, it's not only providential, it's not only promised, but now it is prophesied, or if you want another different P, you could use predicted. So let's take a look at that. It is written And then Isaiah 59, and by the way, there's something of a combination, this whole quote, and scholars are debating the last part. The first part seems pretty certain, Isaiah 59. In fact, you might turn to Isaiah 59. It's an interesting passage. There's a slight difference between what you have in uh, Isaiah and what we have in the book of Romans here. 
you might turn there. I might have somebody read that. So why don't you turn to Isaiah 59, because I want you to notice some other things. It's an interesting passage that, in fact, this is a passage. Remember, we uh, had uh, Raleigh. I introduced him as David, and he gave us some scriptures that we can use with Jewish people. This would be one of them. I don't remember the list if this was one that he gave us. But this is a passage, and notice the reason why. I want you to see some things in Isaiah 59. Who wants to read first verse 20? Somebody read Isaiah 59, 20. I can do that. Go ahead, Connie. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Notice a reference to the Goel, Goel in the, the Hebrew a redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. In other words, a human, a brother as a redeemer. Interesting description of the Messiah. A redeemer will come to Zion and who's talking? So it distinguishes between the redeemer and Yahweh. And a redeemer will come to Zion So here's a passage that speaks of a divine person that will come, a redeemer to Zion. And somebody read verse 21. I will, Ray. Go ahead. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Okay. Now, this is a passage that Paul quotes, but notice you have the Redeemer, you have Yahweh, and who else is referenced in this passage? Spirit. My spirit. This is a Trinitarian Old Testament passage distinguishing three persons identified as God himself made clear in the New Testament. So this is a a good passage that you might just ask some questions. Ask, who is this Redeemer? Who is the Lord? Obviously, that's Yahweh. And who is this Spirit in verse 21? A Redeemer will come to Zion. Now, go back to the book of Romans And the deliverer will come from Zion. Now, in Isaiah, come to Zion. The version that Paul is using is is possibly more than likely the Septuagint. And the Septuagint version, at least perhaps the version that Paul has available, we don't have it, may have made the, the change either way. Both are true. Either way, both are true. The The deliverer will come to Zion, as Isaiah seems to indicate. And in fact, Zechariah says that he will come to a certain location. You know where Zechariah says that the Messiah will set foot, right? Anyone know? Isn't it the the gate? East gate? I don't remember the name of the... Yeah. Well, no. No. I think he will, tradition says he will enter the city through the gate, but where does he set foot? On the Mount of Olives. There you go. You see the Mount of Olives there? 
second arrow, the top arrow, that's the Mount of Olives. This is an interesting shot of the city overall. The bottom arrow, how many of you recognize what gate that is? Just a kind of a reminder to those of you that were on the trip. Oh. Anyone? That's the gate we went That's the eastern gate. No, that's, oh, yeah, that's, that's not the eastern no, gate. It's west. Damascus gate. No, the Damascus gate is... It's on the other side. It's yeah. the Lion's Gate. No. That's the, that's the Jaffa Gate. Jaffa Gate. That's a Jaffa that's Gate. That's we've been in all the time. Yeah, that's, that's the one that we entered gate. in several times. This is, Isn't that the gate that they came up from the, the pond, the Gate of Shalom, or, or something like that? I'm not sure about that. I don't know. Uh, you may be right. I don't know. I don't remember. But basically... Zechariah says that Jesus will set foot on the Mount of Olives, and then the east gate, if you can see my little cursor here, is on the other side of the Dome of the Rock. I'll show you another photograph that shows it closer. This is the Kidron Valley. Gethsemane is down right in this area. Obviously, the Mount of Olives. In fact, the shot, the uh, photograph that I have kind of as a background slide on my uh, computer was taken from this area looking obviously towards Temple Mount and you see all of this area here. So this is the Kidron Valley. Here's the Russian Orthodox Church. Here's that little teardrop chapel. This is the Western Wall. See the Western Wall there? And this obviously is the Jaffa Gate. And so happens that in this photograph, this is the, the King David Hotel where a lot of the diplomats and Leaders spend their time, the YMCA of Jerusalem. Another is, view, that the, is that the citadel next to it? The citadel of David? Yeah. Would be right. I stayed in a hotel right near, right next to that, I think. The citadel's right here. Yeah, it's by that gate. Of, Did you so. stay in the King David? I don't remember the name of it. This was in the 70s. Okay. Our hotel where we stayed is off the screen, off to the right over here, within walking distance. Here's another shot. By the way, let me show you this one. This shot, this is obviously, this is the east, so it's a shot from the west. So the north would be to the left. The south is to the, the right this photograph is looking from the south in this direction, this next photograph. And this will be, this area here is the city of David. And I think, now there's a debate as to what is referred to when it talks about Zion. I think Zion refers to the city of David, and it could include Temple Mount. So the city of David starts at the top arrow there and goes all the way down to this, the bottom area, or arrow rather. And the uh, Pool of Siloam is close to where that lower arrow is located. This is the Kidron Valley. Obviously, here's the Mount of Olives, Temple Mount up at the top there. So this is the southern wall of Temple Mount. Another view, here's the southern wall of Temple Mount. And this is the city of David from here to the off the slide, actually. And this is the plaza of the uh, Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. This is the Jewish Quarter. We spent a few lunch hours in this area, in this place here. And obviously, 
this is an aerial photograph without the Mount of Olives. So that gives you a little picture. So when the text says he will come to Zion, he will land, if you will, on the Mount of Olives, perhaps enter into the East Gate. And if Temple Mount is included, that will be Zion. And uh, Zion, and then Paul says he will come from Zion. And we know that after the arrival of Messiah, he will vanquish his enemies, which will be all over the nation of Israel or the land of Israel. So both are true. He will come to Zion and he will also come from Zion. And the main thing is Paul is using this to explain that he will remove ungodliness from Jacob using Jacob, who is the father, obviously, of the 12 tribes. And then God changed his name to Israel. And it's used in the Old Testament after Jacob, like in Isaiah, and now here in Romans, because it's a quotation. It's a reference to the nation. Jacob stands for the nation. He will remove ungodliness. In other words, a forgiveness of sin remove. And the text also says, this is my covenant with them. What is he referring to in the covenant? Probably both Isaiah and obviously in the quotation. Remember last time I started with that covenant? Abrahamic. Abrahamic. I think in this case, I think he's referring to the new covenant. When when I take away their sins. Yeah. The Abrahamic covenant is a promise of the nation and that God will create a special people. The new covenant speaks of regeneration. It speaks of forgiveness of sins. It speaks of indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It, it Some aspects of it speak of a regathering in the land and a greater pr- productivity in the land. That's the new covenant. So I think what is in view here is the new covenant, and it's spelled out when I take away their sins. So at the heart of uh, what God will do with the nation of Israel, this is supporting how God will, in fact, deliver them or save them. It includes regeneration. It includes the forgiveness of sin. It includes the justification that Paul has described throughout. And then we have another part of the phrase, scholars debate whether Isaiah 27, 9 is in view in the latter part, or whether Jeremiah 31, 34, the one that I read last time, or we read last time, one or the other, or maybe perhaps even even the two of them the latter part there. So when it says, when I take away their sins, that could come from either that Isaiah 27, 9 and or the Jeremiah 31, 34. I don't think it's clear. Both of them seem to say essentially the same thing. Any questions over that part before we kind of introduce this last part, beginning in verse 28 and 29? Very important passage. So now in 28 through 
32, Paul is going to kind of expand what he just revealed, if you will. Part of it is a mystery, and some of it is a passage out of the Old Testament, so some of it should be known. One aspect is the removal of the hardness. Ray, I have a question. After a period of time, okay, I'll get to it. Uh, That's the mystery, the removal of the hardness and that this new era, but uh, the promise of deliverance is spelled out in the Old Testament. That's not part of the mystery. Go ahead, Sharon. Actually, it's Connie. Oh, Connie. Yes. um, Under... On the outline under 1126, since you've jumped to 28 already, um, you have um, the document of deliverance. And I know we were talking about the covenant and that type of thing. What did you specifically refer to as the document of deliverance? The new covenant. Oh, okay. Yeah, you could view it. Yeah, I'm using alliteration there, so I'm kind of stretching it there. So the doc on the outline that I gave you the document of deliverance as the reference to the covenant, which I think is primarily referring to Israel's salvation or deliverance. Does that make it clear? Yes, except for the fact that when you say new covenant, I often think of Jesus's covenant with the church. So, well, yeah, that, that is a theological conclusion that is, almost overwhelmingly the viewpoint of Christianity. And there may not be a, a complete biblical idea there. Yeah, the new covenant, that was one of the reasons I spent some time talking about, and we looked at the Jeremiah 31, which is one of the clearest introductory passages to the new covenant. It's with the house of Jacob and the house of Israel. The parties to the covenant is Israel, not the church. The question and the issue is to what extent, if any, and I'll include if any because that's a viewpoint, does the church participate in the new covenant? We seem to enjoy some aspects of it, it seems like, but there might be some differences there. Yeah, that that bottom line is Isaiah 59, 20 through 21, plus Isaiah 27, 9, or possibly Jeremiah 31, 34. That last phrase in uh, verse 27. Somebody else? Ray? It's Janie. Um, uh, And the new covenant is explicitly stated in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Yes. I wanted to say yeah, a new covenant I will enter into. Yeah, I, I introduced this passage last time, quoting that Jeremiah 31, 31, and it runs further into the Jeremiah chapter. Well, let me uh, just introduce to you, and then we'll get into the details. 28 through 32, I'm describing as the disposition of God or God's attitude or God's viewpoint, however you want to outline it. I use disposition just to alliterate here. 28 and 29 focuses on primarily God's attitude towards the Jews or disposition towards the Jews. And you might expect 30 uh, in 30 through 32 is going to deal with Gentiles. Now, it'll 
deal with actually Jews and Gentiles. And just a quick look at 2829. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, who are the they? Remember who is he talking to primarily? He's talking primarily to the Gentile element, brethren, you, Gentiles, brethren, believers. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, and clearly in this context, are enemies for your sake. The your, again, is plural, referring to the believers, for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's, you could translate it, election, God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And since it's a complete, it's only one sentence all the way through 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So now he's kind of reviewing. In fact, 28 through 32 is a little bit of a summation, a little bit of a review, kind of putting a cap on all that he said and somewhat summarizing and reviewing some of the things that he just immediately said in verses 25 through 27. So So what does he mean by the sake of the fathers? Well, he's been talking about the patriarchs, I think, And that's a little bit of the support that you could use to see the root in the uh, illustration of the olive tree. The root include the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, because of the covenant. Now, this would refer to the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, for the sake of what God has entered into covenant, the Abrahamic covenant with the fathers— uh, what, what word is what? What word is translated "sake"? Do you, what did you get to the heart of that? I think it's just a Greek preposition. I'll have to look it up for you. Dia, dia, dia. dia okay. Oh, that's all it is. Yeah. Yeah, dia with the accusative. Dia. In well, that's the, an interesting in, translation. Is there any comment on that? Isn't that a little unusual? Uh, yeah, but. I don't think it's out of the uh, realm of usage. Do you have any comments on that, Nate? No, I mean, often dia with the accusatives translated because of or on account of. Or for the sake of, in this case. And I, it's along the same line. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying, on account of. Yeah. Good question, though. Great. So we don't have to wait till next week. We got an answer immediately. That's the advantage of having a seminary professor that teaches Greek. (laughs) Okay. Well, any other questions before we move on? And we'll have another introduction today. I think one of the applications that we can personally take away from this is that God never abandons his own. Israel belongs to God by covenant, by promise. Their salvation is certain. I think this passage makes that crystal clear. But in terms of you and I, we have promises as well, and God will never abandon us. We are secure in him. Why don't we have an introduction, and then we'll have a closing prayer. I asked Terry... And Sherry, do you want to maybe show your cameras, your camera? 
Uh, I guess we could call them Sterry, the two of them, <coughs> Terry and Sherry, introduce themselves. You want to go? Good morning, everyone. My name is Terry McCabe. It's my wife, Sherry. Um, we've been married for 36 years, and we have three grown children and three beautiful granddaughters So uh, that live in Texas. Um, we live in Albuquerque. Um, I work up in Los Alamos and I stay up there during the week. Of course, of COVID, it's changed. Um, we met at a Bible study at Hoffman Town Church way back in the 80s, early 80s. Um, and it kind of is different how we met. We were in a little Bible study group, and in the group, they kind of published everyone's uh, birthday. Just as, And one day, Sherry came up, and we were in the kitchen, and she said, are you Terry McCabe? And I says, yeah. And she goes, we have the same birthday. Um, and not only do we have the same birthday on the same year, but the same day. We were born on the same day, um, which is different. Um, I came to Christ uh, in, in uh, college, um, grew up Catholic, and uh, never really, it was more of an obligation type of uh, Christianity, and I just kind of first heard the gospel through some friends in college, and um, piqued my interest, and I accepted the Lord late in college, and uh, kind of lingered for a few years before um, I started to get involved in a group, and that's how it led me to Hoffman Town. So anyway, I'm talking all Sherry. Um, I was raised in a Christian home, a per strong Christian home, um, strong dysfunction, but strong Christian, and became a Christian in third grade. And um, I, what else? I uh, homeschooled. I homeschooled our three kids. We have two sons and a daughter. Um, and I like to do crafts, lots of different ones. Um, and I like to listen to podcasts. Um, I do have a small business at home. I sell headsets uh, for the telephones and computer that Sandia. And it used to be a part-time job. I've done it for 15 years. And um, when COVID hit, it became a full-time job. So I spend a lot of hours on the computer ordering headsets for people for use during COVID since they have to work at home or some of them are working on site, but many are working at home. So it made my business triple. <laughs> so Good. so uh, when I got to tell Sherry that we could share about a little bit about who we are and, you know, our, even our, how we met our kids and grandkids and she goes, Oh, our grandkids. So do we get the whole hour? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really say that, but I know. Well, <laughs> if you ask I, us about them, we'll talk your ear off. I said, oh, I'll, I'll see if I can do with Ray. Maybe I can get an extra minute for Ray. So, <laughs> and like Ray, I'm a diehard Lobo fan. So I was going to say that. Yeah. Harry's trying to write a book. On Lobo basketball, he's probably been writing it for ten years. Right. So, if anybody has any writing ability to help me along, um, 
let me know because I would love to um, collaborate with you. So great. And or what no, do you I'm do? One. What do you do at Sandia? Are you an engineer also? He's in Los Alamos. No, I, I actually work up in Los Alamos, and I'm actually in human resources. I uh, work for a contractor to the lab up at Los Alamos National Lab. So uh, I'm physically up there during the week, except for COVID. And I uh, we provide all the contract personnel to Los Alamos Labs. Great. Any prayer prayer requests? And who would care to volunteer to pray for Sterry McCabe? <laughs> Only probably the only re the biggest request we have is one of the little girls, the middle little girl that our daughter has, is actually a foster child. They have recently um, been awarded permanent guardianship, but the mother has come back and is wanting her back. She's 18 months old. Her name is Cielo. She was a drug addicted baby. Um, She's all the mother has already had her rights terminated, and that's what she is appealing. Um, this is her fifth child that she has had and given away. Wow. Um, wow. so as far as we know, this is the only one that she's decided to try to get back. Um, so just recently, in the last couple of weeks, she has um asked to have that uh, um reversed. So now court starts all over again. Um, we really thought we were at the end of it um, for a year and a half, but we may be in for a long stint now. Um, but Cielo is, as far as we're concerned, God has given her to us, and she is one of our grandchildren, whether she lives with our daughter or not. So She's been completely integrated into the family, you know. Almost two years, so you can imagine how traumatic that would be. Wow. Not just traumatic for us, but very for traumatic her. for her. For Especially, her. yeah. She does not know another home. Yep. Anyone care to pray? Close Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for Terry and Sherry and how you provided them for each other in such a way as you even cause them to be born for each other on the same day. That is so cool, God. You are so awesome. Lord, I, I thank you that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, that they know you, and that we can bring this situation with CLO before you. Father, your word says that you set the solitary in families, and you have done that with CLO, and she has a family um, with uh, her current foster slash adopted family. I don't know where they are in that process, but Father, we pray that we pray that this this court case of the the mom who has given five other children away or four other children away um, would come to naught. We pray that you would show that track record to the judges who will be adjudicating this and and Lord that that you would award Cielo to her current family. Um, we know that you are in charge of this. We know that this does not surprise you. We know that Sherry and Terry's love for her, as well as her mom and dad's love for her, will continue no matter where she is physically. Father, I pray for your protection of Cielo and her sisters um, during this whole battle. 
I pray for your protection of uh, Sherry and Terry's daughter and son-in-law during this whole battle. I pray for your encouragement for them, that they would be able to walk closely with you and feel your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. All right. Any last words? It's nice to see you guys, Terry and Sherry. This is from Jim. Yeah. And Jody's standing here, too. She- Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. Is Cielo her birth name, or um, did they did your daughter give the name? No, that was her. Her birth mother gave her that name, and but she does not have a middle name. And my daughter feels like, um, our our daughter feels that that is part of her history and who she is, and wanted to keep that. Besides, we truly see her as a blessing from heaven. Hmm. And Cielo means sky or heaven. Um, hmm. And we, that's exactly the way we see her. So her name is Cielo. Hmm. And I was going to say that is a very appropriate name. Exactly. Great. In Spanish. Yeah. Yes, it is. Good. All right. Well, have a good week, everybody. Thank you, Ray. God bless you. Thank you.